0: So uh, tonight we begin the 10th uh, the principle. Uh, as far as my notes are concerned, so this is the, uh, the longest of them. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, in the presentation of it, uh, you'll necessarily know, uh, know a difference, but this is one which is, uh, uh, philosophically, this is one which is, uh, which is really packed. Uh, so as we talked about uh, uh, last week, we said that um, the, uh, as we move uh, from the 9th to 10th principle, So now we move on to the uh, final uh, third, the final grouping of principles, which have to do with reward and punishment. So these four principles, 10, 11, 12, 13, are all going to revolve around that general topic. Uh, This first one, the name that I have for it is Omniscience in Divine Providence, which means essentially, or the Hebrew would be, Yediyas Hashem Vashkacha Pratis. So this has to do with God's knowledge of what happens in the world. The Hashka HaPratis is going to be divine providence in the sense that God is going to control, and he's going to be able to manipulate the world and decide what exactly is going to uh, to happen. So there are two themes, two major themes, which are encompassed by this this particular principle, this 10th principle. Uh, The first one is God's knowledge of mankind, that God is aware of what's happening in the uh, in, in the world. Uh, he has to, He didn't just create the world, uh, set it spinning, and then walk away to go ahead and uh, uh, attend to other things. And then the second major theme is God's interaction with mankind, or like we say, hashkacha pratis. So it's not just that God knows what's happening, but it's also the fact that God is. uh, God is familiar and he's actually interacting and in a sense responding to what us humans are doing in this world as as well. Um, Now this idea of of divine providence, of God's uh, interaction uh, with us, so it's not only related to this particular principle, to principle number 10, but it's also going to relate to the following principle, which we'll get to in a few weeks, having to do more specifically with reward and punishment. And we'll see how God's uh, hashkacha pratis and reward and punishment are also two principles which are intertwined with one another in an, uh, in an inseparable uh, way. But we're, what we're going to try and focus our attention on to try and be, uh, be attentive to is the, uh, the first thing having to do with God's knowledge of mankind and, uh, the, uh, and the, uh, the general idea of divine providence of God's uh, uh, awareness in his his interaction with things which are going on. So that will really say for the the next principle, the 11th principle. Now, this idea of divine omniscience, this idea that God is aware of what's going on, uh, philosophically and uh, uh, theologically is the most difficult principle which we have because it's very difficult to understand um, or different ways that we could present the conundrum, in a sense, that Yedias Hashem, that God's knowledge and our Bechira Chavshis, and our free will, how they're going to be able to uh, to coexist in some sort of um, uh, uh, some sort of uh, methodology, um, and that is the uh, if we were to go ahead and formulate the uh, the difficulty. So on the one hand, we would say if God knows everything, if we take omniscience. Uh, literally and, uh, and simply. So we'd say God knows everything which happens, even the future. And therefore, his foreknowledge, so he already knows in advance from the moment that I was conceived or the moment that I was born, whether I will be a Tzaddik or whether I'm going to be a Rasha. If omniscience is actually going to be true, that God knows everything, so he knows the outcome of, uh, of all of our lives. And if God has already knows from the moment of conception whether a person is going to be a tzaddik or a rasha. So that knowledge is something which cannot be changed, because that's what the omniscience principle is going to mean, is that it cannot be changed. And therefore, if God already knows whether I'm going to be a tzaddik or a rasha, so where does my bechir hafshis, where does my free will come along and play a role? Seemingly, my bechir hafshis is going to be limited, because if I'm destined to be a tzaddik, I can't actually do things which would make me into a rasha. Because that would violate God's, uh, God's omniscience. That would mean that he doesn't know exactly what's going on. And then, uh, on the other hand, uh, if we say that I do, if we're going to go ahead and emphasize my Bechira Chavshis, we're going to emphasize my free will and say that I have the, the power to choose the direction of my life and whether I'm going to end up being a tzaddik or I'm going to end up being a rasha. So if that's something which is subject to my Bechira Chavshis, that means God doesn't know. That means God doesn't know in advance what I'm going to be, and if God doesn't know in advance what I'm going to be, so then this is going to be a problem in terms of God's omniscience. That means he's not omniscient, he's not all-knowing in terms of what's going on, because there are variables in place which have not yet been determined, and God doesn't know. So that is... Uh, essentially two sides of the same coin. That's the same question, just from different perspectives in terms of how we're going to balance omniscience versus the HaFshiz versus free will. Now, there's a second problem that this, uh, that this, uh, uh, this uh, idea of God's omniscience is going to present to us. And that is, is that it seemingly violates what we learned about back in the second principle, a number of months ago, which had to do with God's unity. I want to, to give you a quiz as to what the second principle is about, but it has to do with uh, with God's unity. And in that principle, so we declared God's absolute unity, and meaning that everything is unified into a single unit, and God is absolutely unchanging. Nothing can change about uh, God. So, um, so if we were to go ahead and we were to say that uh, uh, our free will is going to be the dominant principle. And we have the ability to choose. So that means at any given moment, so God doesn't know exactly what's going on. So that means that God's knowledge is not uni- is not unified, is not the, uh, uh, something which is already a part of him. It's something which he acquires. So as time unfolds, as, it, as history unfolds, so God becomes aware of what's happening in real time, and if God is observing it in real time the same way that we are, so that means that the new knowledge which he acquired um, today, Erev Rosh Chodesh Sivan, he didn't have two days ago on Yom Yishalayim. And if that God has the ability to acquire knowledge, so that's going to violate the principle of unity, which says that God is already perfect in every shape or form, in every way, shape, or form. and absolutely does not change. So that also is going to be a problem which we, we, we are going to have. Now, um, uh, if um, and, uh, together with that is going to also indicate that God's aware that God uh, uh, possesses a certain degree of ignorance because he's unaware of what tomorrow is going to bring or he's un- unaware of what next week is going to bring or next month is going to bring. And that certainly is a conclusion which we don't want to, uh, to reach that God will be unaware of what's going to happen. He has ignorance of that. So how are we going to go ahead? Bottom line is, how do we balance between God's omniscience on the one hand and the ability that we have to, uh, to, uh, to be able to exercise our own bechir hafshis, our own free will? So as we said, this is a question which has uh, troubled philosophers for generations and generations, not even necessarily just Jewish philosophers, but any uh, religion who believes in the concept of free will uh, but also believes in an omniscient God has to be able to reconcile these two contradictory, uh, these seemingly contradictory ideas of how to go ahead and balance them to, uh, together. And um, there are, share with you some uh, some approaches, which are a little bit less than satisfactory. And then we'll go ahead and we'll try and uh, put together, formulate a uh, an approach, which uh, hopefully will be satisfactory. So there are some who went ahead and posited that God created a spiritual being who is going to watch and control the world. So God is the CEO. Uh, the CEO takes long golf vacations and whatnot, uh, spends a lot of time in the Bahamas and in warm weather uh, rather than being the, uh, the middle of May and still having to wear uh, a winter coat. God says, enough with the Chicago winters already. I'm going off to uh, some divine warm place uh, where, I could, uh, where I could spend my time. So he goes ahead and assigns a, a middle manager of sorts to go ahead and to watch and to direct what's going to happen in the world. And this this being, it's not the divine being, but this being has full knowledge of mankind and is aware of all of their actions and is even empowered to go ahead and reward and punish based on the choices that, the, the, that people make. So now... The advantage of this approach, before we get into the, uh, the shortcomings of this approach, but the advantage of this approach is that uh, we promote God so high up the totem pole, so high up into the heavens, that he no longer deals with us. So God could very well know exactly what's going on. He could have foreknowledge of, uh, of the future, and he could have uh, omniscience and all that stuff. But that's not going to impact his knowledge of what we're going to do, doesn't impact us because he doesn't interact with us directly. He puts this middle manager in charge to go ahead and to oversee and to deal and to reward and punish accordingly. And it's going to, uh, and that uh, intermediary isn't omniscient in any way. That intermediary in a sense lives together with us in real time. As time unfolds, and therefore, so that's how from uh, from the middle manager downwards, so that's where free will exists. Let's say in this universe, so free will is going to exist when you get higher than that, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu is. So that's where omniscience is going to uh, is going to be dominant, is going to uh, to play a role, and um, uh, that's where um, uh, uh, God is going to be and His foreknowledge are going to exist. But there's going to be this glass ceiling or glass floor which separates between where god is as the observer and all of his omniscience knowing what's going on and where we are down here which is going to be lower down in a world of uh, of free will now the problem with this approach is there's three different issues with uh, this uh, at least three different issues with this uh, this approach first of all we said back in the fifth principle that we don't believe in intermediaries so to believe that God went ahead and put an intermediary in between us and him so that we're not interacting with him directly, but we're going through this uh, intermediary. So that is already going to be problematic because it goes against principle number five. Now, another thing is, is that this uh, very closely or it may very well cross a line in terms of violation of principle number two. Principle number two was the fact that there could be no other God other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this being, this middle manager, which we're putting in place over here, who's going to oversee mankind's behavior and is going to reward in punishment and punishment and lives in real time together with us. So, this intermediary has an awful lot of godlike qualities uh, to him or to her, whatever uh, uh, pronoun we're gonna go ahead and use, but to it. So that's going to be problematic in terms of giving this, uh, this, uh, this intermediary very divine like qualities. So it may not be an outright violation of principle number two, but it certainly is going to have us scratching our heads as to whether or not we, if we give too much power to this intermediary. So then it's going to be godlike, which violates principle number two. And the last and perhaps uh, the most troubling of all of this is that it makes God a non-active force in the universe. As we said, in the, uh, you know, as I was sort of joking as I introduced this, uh, this, uh, this approach, that God goes ahead and he has retired off in the Bahamas somewhere, and he's just letting somebody else go ahead and, uh, and run the business. He's like that CEO that as long as you continue to send him profits on the business so he doesn't care about what a- what actually is happening and he's perfectly content enjoying his uh, enjoying his uh, his vacation time so be- God becomes some sort of figurehead or perhaps if you could go ahead and assign him that title he is God emeritus in terms of the running of the uh, uh, of the universe uh, when he shows up, he gets to go ahead and do what he wants. He gets to see up front. But essentially, he is uh, in a retired mode, no longer active. And that's going to be very bad in terms of the whole way that davening is structured and the way we address God in davening. It would seem that we should not really be addressing God. We should really be uh, addressing this intermediary. So this approach is a little bit less than uh, than satisfying. Now, another uh, uh, approach that uh, some philosophers uh, take is that uh, there's going to be a limitation on God's omniscience. So God certainly is omniscient; he's aware of what's uh, of, of what's happening, but his knowledge of things which are happening in the world is limited to those things which are themselves constant and unchanging. Now I'm not sure scientifically we would say at this point anything is constant and unchanging but it could very well be that uh, a few thousand years ago there was a perception that the universe was constant and unchanging it was just sort of fixed where it is it is what it is and nothing is going to be uh, is going to be uh, changing now if we assume that that's the uh, the approach so God is fully aware of what's happening in the world and in the universe as a whole because those are things which are unchanging but individual beings you know, which uh, lion is going to catch which gazelle, which is a fleeting thing, which isn't even a blink of an eye in the, uh, the course of, of, of history. So God doesn't pay any attention to that. That's something which is of no consequence to, uh, to God. And therefore, he sort of lets things run on their, their own. And that is not really part of what we would say God's omniscience. And this would also include mankind. Mankind, each individual, not necessarily mankind, the species, but mankind, meaning each individual, is also something which is transient, it's, uh, and it's changing, it's imperfect, and um, uh, not the way I, I have it written down is knowledge of them would in turn be an imperfection. Because God would would then be interacting, he would have knowledge of an imperfect being, a transient imperfect being, and that would represent some sort of deficiency in God's knowledge. Now, I can't say that I understand 100% what this philosophical approach means, all of the ramifications of it, and all of the implications, and the uh, the lachot as they would say uh, in Israel. But... um, the, what it means is, what, what it is going to include is, is that God has no knowledge of what we do as humans. And that's something which is troubling in and of itself to go ahead and assert that God is not aware, is not interacting, is not aware of what, the, what we do. And because if we say that God is not attentive to and is unaware of what people are doing, so the whole premise of reward and punishment sort, sort of disappears. Reward and punishment from God only makes sense if God is watching and God is attentive and he's, he's keeping track, he's keeping score of what's happening. As soon as we assume that God uh, is not aware or is not paying attention to what happens with imperfect transient beings, so then the next principle, principle 11, having to do with reward and punishment is sort of out the window. You can't reward and punish if you're not really being uh, paying attention to what's uh, what, what's going on. And therefore, this one is also going to be a, uh, a, a problematic uh, approach, uh, difficult to, uh, to, uh, to understand. Um, so now let's go with the Rambam's approach. The Rambam was also a philosopher, besides being a, uh, a, a halachic master. So the Rambam had a very strong um, uh, interest uh, in the uh, mastery of, of philosophy. So this is not something which the Rambam is going to let, uh, let go, let, uh, let, let pass. And he says that, uh, if you remember, we talked about that when we describe God, when we assign God particular attributes, we never have the capacity to be able to um, um, capture God's attributes in a positive sense. In other words, when we say God is wise... We can't really say what exactly God's wisdom looks like. There's no way to be able to measure that. He's sort of off the IQ charts. He's off the Mensa charts. He's off the ACT and uh, you know, AC, you know, ACT and his GMATs and all of those things. He's going to register off the charts in terms of all of those things. And we can never really describe what God is. The most we could do is we could say what God is not. So we say God is wise. We're not capturing his wisdom. We're saying that God absolutely cannot be ignorant. There can be no such thing as ignorance as far as is God is concerned. When we say God is strong and He's mighty and powerful, so we're not comparing Him to a a, a weightlifter or something of that uh, of that uh, sort. What we're saying is is that God is not weak. That we can say for sure. We can describe Him in terms of the negative, what He is not but not so much to be able to capture what he is because when what you possess is infinite, so you can't really put, you can't capture that in words. You're not gonna be able to describe that because as soon as you go ahead and you put that in words or you try and capture that, that is going to be, um, uh, that's going to be a limitation. And that limitation by definition cannot uh, it, it exist. So when we say that God is all-knowing, and God it is omniscient in all of those things, all of those seemingly positive traits which we assign to God, we can't really say what that means. It's not within our capacity to be able to capture that in a positive sense, because that would involve understanding God's true essence. And as we know from those first five uh, uh, principles, there's no way that we're going to be able to capture or we're going to be able to understand or comprehend God's true essence in any way, shape or, or, or form. And therefore, questions related to God's knowledge and how that's going to be uh, uh, compatible with God's unity uh, isn't really a valid question, according to the Rambam. Because in order to be able to reconcile and try and uh, uh, um, explain God's unity and what all the uh, implications of that in God's omniscience, so the only way to be able to do so would be able to capture in words what exactly that means And we take as a given that we're never going to be able to do so. So as far as the Rambam is concerned, he sort of avoids the question of uh, trying to balance God's omniscience with our Bechira Chavshis, with our free will, by saying that uh, since we don't have the language and we don't have the capacity to really understand any of those terms any of those uh, descriptions that we have to God. So there's no way to be able to compare and contrast them if we don't really know what we're talking about in the first place anyways. You know, it's uh, you know, a non-medical person trying to compare the, uh, you know, the Moderna vaccine versus the Pfizer vaccine vaccine. If you don't have any knowledge of, of, of medicine, so then there's no way you can be able to, uh, to capture them. You know, I, I, let's say the, the Johnson and Johnson, the Moderna versus Johnson and Johnson. So for us uh, 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 ignorant people, so all we know is one is two shots and the other is one shot. That's the extent of our knowledge of the difference between them. Why, what, what, where, and how? All of those things, we have no way of being able to say anything about them. We can't compare and contrast them because we don't have the background or the ability to discuss them intelligently. So the Rambam says that, the Rambam doesn't really answer the question. He says that when you begin to ask these questions about God and how we're going to be able to balance on the one hand, God's omniscience, and on the other hand, our Bechir Chavshis, the questions don't even really begin because we don't know what either of those actually means. So once we accept we don't really know what either of those actually means, then you can't go ahead and point out and say, well, they're inconsistent with one another because inconsistency implies some level of understanding of what each of them uh, happens to be. And since we don't know what each of them happens to be, then you can't even ask, you know, a claim that they're inconsistent or they are cons- uh, consistent. There's going to be no way to be able to reconcile that because there is no way to, uh, there is, uh, no way to be able to, uh, to, put that, uh, to put that into wor- uh, to words. So that's the way the Rambam, as I said, doesn't answer the question, but that's the way the Rambam goes ahead and he will uh, avoid the question. That's how he's going to sidestep the question philosophically by saying that we don't really have the necessary definitions in order to make these uh, um, uh, comparisons or contrasts. Okay, so let me share with you perhaps two different approaches to this, uh, which hopefully will uh, will sit a little bit uh, better with us and something which we'll be able to wrap our, uh, our our heads around. So now, one I think is uh, I'm a little bit more comfortable than the, than the other. But one is to say that God's omniscience, God's knowledge of what's happening in this world, so it is in a certain sense limited. Now, although we're going to use, in terms of our, the English language, we're going to say it's limited, um, it's not going to be a limitation of God, which is bad. It's going to be a limitation of God, which is good. If you remember, a number of uh, months ago, we talked about God's inability to create a rock that he cannot lift. But his inability to create the rock that he cannot lift is not a shortcoming of God. It's not a chisar, and it's not a deficiency it's in, in God. Or let's, Let me make that easier. That God cannot make a mistake. So God's inability to make a mistake doesn't represent, is not an expression of a deficiency in God. The definition of perfection is, is that you cannot be, that you're not imperfect. That's the definition, that's the definition of perfection. So if we say God is perfect, so that means by definition, he cannot be the negative side of that, which is to be imperfect. So God cannot make a mistake, but the inability to make a mistake isn't a deficiency, doesn't represent something which God is lacking, that is a definition of what it means for him to be perfect. So this approach says, yes, God's knowledge is going to be limited, but not in a way which is going to represent a deficiency or a shortcoming in in God's existence. But it's really going to represent, the. it's going to be expressive of the full scope of what he is capable of doing of his perfection. But this approach says that God knows what's happened in a general sense. He knows in very general terms what is going to unfold in the course of history. But in terms of every last detail of how that unfolding is going to occur, so uh, that he specifically, that, he, that God uh, does not know, that's where Bechir HaFshis is going to be able to play a, a, a role. So we know that certain things have to happen. We'll give an example of this, uh, this later, but uh, how the exact details and who's going to play a role and how they're going to play that role in the unfolding of the essential points of, of uh, uh, in the unfolding of world history, so that is something which is unknown to God. So let's give it, a, let's give it before we give a, a historical example, let me just give an example uh, for, um, uh, to understand the, the overall concept. Uh, if I were to go ahead and sit down with a chess grandmaster, so nobody here in a million years thinks that I'm going to win. We all know from the outset, he is going to win this game. Now, although we know, and he knows perfectly well, he's going to win that game, He doesn't know exactly how he's going to do so because there's always going to be the variable there, which is, what move am I going to make? Now, he can plan for all of my different moves, and he's got it all strategized out in advance, but I could do something which is really goofy, or I could do something which is really smart. If I do something really goofy, he may not have anticipated that. It's not going to change the outcome that he's going to win. He's still going to win, but he's going to have to go ahead and adjust to the goofy move which I made or the silly move which I made just in order to be able to, because he wasn't anticipating that I could be such a foolish chess player. So the, the outcome is known in advance. Nobody thinks when we sit down and we play that there's any chance that I'm going to win, but what every move over the course of the game is going to be so that the grandmaster doesn't know and he's going to have to audible somewhat. He's going to have to respond to the moves which I make in order to bring about that uh, that, 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 that final outcome. So in the same way, um, uh, uh, if we apply that to, to God, so the same thing is going to be true in terms of God's knowledge of how things are going to happen. So, for example, God knew that there was going to be a Yitzias Mitzrayim. There was no doubt in God's uh, mind whatsoever. It was well known that there's going to be a Tzaius Mitzrayim. And in fact, God actually knew that Paro is going to be the one who's going to release us from its Mitzrayim. However, there were certain details along the way that, uh, that had to sort of play themselves out that weren't known in advance. Is Paro going to be a willing player of letting the Jews go? He's going to say, yeah, sure, I believe in God, or at least by the eighth, uh, the, by the eighth plague, the, you know, power goes, ah, enough, enough. My arm is twisted uh, far enough. I can't handle it anymore. they will let us out at that point. Or God will continue to just keep twisting and twisting and twisting till power essentially has no arms left to twist anymore. And then he doesn't really have a choice. And then he says, get out of here. I want you guys out of here as quickly as you could possibly go. So whether power would be a willing participant or whether Power will be a reluctant participant, that in a sense was, that was Power's choice. He had a hardened heart. We're not going to go into his hardened heart right now, but he had a choice as to whether or not he's going to play ball or he's going to try and not play ball. But at the end of the day, is going to let us out of Mitzrayim. There was no doubt as far as that is concerned. So God has that general knowledge, of sort of like the outline of how things are going to unfold, but the particular details of what's going to happen. So that is something which is uh, which is sort of left to Bechira uh, Chavshitz. It's left to mankind to go ahead and decide to play ball willingly or to be forced to go ahead and, uh, you know, uh, like you would t- tell your kids, we're going on vacation. Either you'll enjoy the vacation or you'll be upset during the vacation, but we're going either way. It's not a choice whether you're going on, on vacation. So whether you want to enjoy yourself or not, that's uh, that's your choice. So that is an approach which uh, also some philosophers take in order to be able to, uh, to, to reconcile that, that God's omniscience is, in very general terms, is the outline of what needs to take place is going to happen. And then like, uh, you know, Uh, you know, anybody who's planned the simcha. So, you know, there's certain things, there are certain elements of the simcha which you plan for, and you know, they for sure have to take place somehow, but then there's always going to be those variables which are going to come up, which you could never anticipate, and you just have to be ready for them, and just, uh, you know, hopefully take them in stride, rather than getting uh, derailed by them, and just let them uh, sort of uh, run their course. Now, the problem, the uh, the major problem, the major uh, uh, issue, which I have uh, with somebody adopting this approach, is that in a certain sense, this puts God, this uh, uh, confines God into time. That means God is existing with us in real time, and since uh, using the example we said, if God didn't know in advance. Whether or not Paro would be a willing player to let the Jewish people go from Mitzrayim or whether he's going to be a reluctant player in letting the Jewish people leave Mitzrayim or send them out of Mitzrayim. What that means is, is that at the beginning of the story, when Moshe shows up on day one with plague number one and he says there's going to be blood in all of the waters, God didn't know what was going to happen three months later he knew the jews on, on the 15th of nisan he knew the jews would leave Mitzrayim on the 15th of nisan but he didn't know necessarily how all of those details are going to uh, are going to unfold and that that shortcoming in terms of god's knowledge of how things are going to unfold and as they unfold god becomes aware of them so that means that god is existing with us in real time and that means that he is acquiring new knowledge and he is uh, he is experiencing the unfolding of history, together with us, and anytime we go ahead and try and confine God into the timeline, that's going to be problematic, because we've established numerous times in these in the uh, in this uh, this course on the thirteen principles that God doesn't exist in time; he's no way confined in time. And here, we are going to be uh, we are going to be uh, we are going to be doing that. So, that's uh, the reason. That's the primary reason. Why that approach also doesn't sit so well with me. So, um, um, let me share with you the uh, the approach which uh, uh, sits uh, sits best with uh, with me. So, just to go ahead and reframe the uh, the question, uh, we're tr- we're struggling to figure out how we're going to balance God's foreknowledge of of of, of, of events, God's omniscience, together with the existence, the possibility of us being able to. Exercise our, our, our free will, and the way that I uh, reconcile that in my head is to point out that uh, the the premise of the question is faulty because we're comparing apples and oranges. In other words, our existence here on Earth is an existence that relates that exists uh, in time, as we just mentioned. So there's yesterday, there's today, and there's tomorrow. So we live in a timeline, and everything in the universe changes, every person changes, events uh, change and and unfold, and there's nothing which is going to remain consistent in, in our world. God, his perspective, the omniscient, when we talk about God's omniscience, in God's knowledge of everything which happens, that existence takes place outside of the existence of time outside of the confines of time, God has that that, that awareness of what's going on. We can't uh, understand uh, what it means to exist without there being a past, present, and a future. Those are concepts which are beyond human comprehension to be able to consider what um, existence without time is, but that is God's existence. So we're trying to go ahead and make this comparison between Our free will, which exists in a world of time and the the timeline in which we find ourselves, and trying to reconcile that with God's knowledge of things, which is not confined in time. So, those two things don't really coexist at the same time. They, they don't exist on the same plane. They don't exist in the same dimension. And as a result of that, it's going to be difficult for us. It's a little bit like the Rambam. It's going to be difficult for us to go ahead and try and reconcile, reconcile those things. But God's knowledge, uh, but what we can say is, is that God's knowledge of, of the world, his omniscience, in no way impacts our free choice. He may know from his perspective outside of, the, of the, uh, the, 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 the timeline of what the final result is going to be, but that doesn't impact the way we experience things in real time as time is going to unfold. Let's say I were to go ahead. Uh, let's make it easier for you guys to understand. Let's say uh, you were to offer me a Burger Buddy or a, um, um, some uh, grilled salmon. So you're giving me a free choice. I have the choice between a burger buddy and grilled salmon. Now it's a free choice. Both of them are there. They're both in front of me, and I could choose either one of them uh, as freely as I would choose the other. Then, and if they both you have, have any mushroom. doubt, what? And they both have mushrooms. No, then 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 I would have any choice.
1: <laughs> I, I thought so. Just confirming.
0: It has to be that I actually have a real choice. It's so now, so point. if you're giving me that choice, so not one of you has any doubt whatsoever which way I'm going to choose. You all know a thousand percent, a thousand times out of a thousand, I'm going to choose the burger body over that, uh, that piece of salmon. And it does not matter what day of the year it is. It could be a leap year. It could be, uh, you know, whatever Dr. Seuss is, October, the, fir- the 31st of October, whatever date you're going to go ahead and you're going to come up with, I'm going to choose that burger body thousand times out of a thousand. But does that mean that I didn't have a free choice? I have free choice. I could have chosen the salmon. So just because you know because you know me and you know my eating tendencies and you know that there's no way I'm ever going to choose fish over anything, even over dirt, I'm not gonna go ahead and choose uh, fish. So you know your knowledge of what I'm going to choose doesn't impact my ability to choose. I still have free choice between one or the other. And your knowledge of that doesn't impact, it, doesn't impact it at all. So therefore, God's awareness of how we're going to choose, what choices we're going to make over the course of our lives, that doesn't influence our choice as far as how we are experiencing it in real time. God knows our personality. One second, Mel. He knows our personality. He knows our background. He knows what we're capable of doing and what we're not capable of doing. And he knows at any given time how we're going to end up choosing. But as far as where I exist, where my, my perception of things, in my perception of things, I am struggling to make a choice between doing good or doing bad, doing the mitzvah, not doing the mitzvah, doing the avera or not doing the aveyra. And as far as my existence is concerned, that choice is real and that choice is taking place in, in, in real time. And I don't know what the future is going to be yet until I actually make that choice, exercise that choice. I don't know what it is. And therefore I can be rewarded or punished based on my choice. Because as far as I am concerned, from my perspective, that choice is hundred percent real. Yes, Mel. If you choose burgers all the time and never fish. But A little louder. If you only choose burgers and you never choose fish. Yes. And I can claim that you don't have a choice there's something in inane in, 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 in intrinsic in you that forces you to choose a burger all the time and that you really don't have free choice unless one time you choose fish i'll say he has no choice um no because because i do have a choice no you don't have a choice yeah because you've never chosen fish i can say that there's something inherent in your personality that you can never, never, no matter what you think you can do, you can't choose fish. Yeah, oh, oh, OK. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm not going to go. Yeah, you're, you're correct. You're correct. Um, if, you, if, if you caught me when we were not doing the 13 principles, you caught, you caught, you caught me on a different night of the week, um, I, I would agree with you. I would say that um, uh, I think I've been talking about this a little bit in the, in, in the drushes that I've been, uh, been sending out and whatnot. That uh, as time goes on, I am a believer that the scope of our true choice is very limited. Because, um, you know, so many factors in, in our lives where, you know, if you if you know how things work, you know, in the mind and in, in the brain and whatnot. So what sometimes we think our choices are actually not choices. These are things, you know, they're they're almost um. Instinctive uh, responses, which we have to things, they are. Um, I always forget the word. Um, conditioned response. Uh, it's a conditioned response when you hit the knee and the knee kicks out. Reflex. Reflex. Much of what we do is really. Thank you. Much of what we do is really a reflex rather than representative of actual uh, actual thought. You know, as we was in talking about, when somebody goes out and pushes your button. And you get, uh, you know, you get excited, you get excited, you get angry about this something. So nobody goes ahead and, at the moment their button is pressed, nobody st- pauses for the moment and say, "Well, should I respond irrationally or should I respond rationally?" You know, what? I'm going to go the irrational response, right? We don't, we don't think that way. It's a reflex, right? We we respond the way we are conditioned to respond. We respond the way our current programming uh 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 instructs instructs us. The, the way our, our current programming uh, uh, leads us to respond and it's not a choice which we're making we could make a repair afterwards but you're right if you ca- if you catch me on a philosophical uh, on a different philosophical night or a psychological night so i would agree with you that our, that our choice is very limited and i probably at this point in my life cannot choose the fish even if i wanted to it just uh, it just uh, wouldn't work but i'm not going to be so uh so uh, uh psychological tonight i'm going to go philosophical rather than psychological if that's okay Theoretically, you could choose fish. Right. Theoretically, I can choose fish. The, God's knowledge, what, what I mean to say is God's knowledge or your knowledge that I'm going to choose the burger buddy doesn't, in, that now, your knowledge of that doesn't force me to choose the burger buddy. Now, there may be other factors, there may be internal factors inside of me, which are, forces me to choose the burger buddy over the salmon, but your knowledge of it th- doesn't in any way uh, impact my free choice. Maybe I could put it. Uh, I could put it that way. Okay. Um. So now. Um. um how do you solve solve the time problem there? How do you solve the what? The time problem that you had with the first with the first approach. So God God God. Uh, God knows in advance. Uh, how I'm going to choose. He's fully oh. aware of all the choice I'm going to make.
1: But just so it's by not,
0: saying in advance, you're bringing time back into it. I'm bringing time into it in my choice, but not from God. God's knowledge of it is his past, present, future is all the same, but his knowledge of it, which exists outside of time, doesn't impact my real-time choice. A, a be, a, let, let me give you a be, better example than the, uh, the, than the Burger Buddy. Um, if, if you ever watch a movie a second time, or you watch a rerun of, it, of a TV show, so the, if you think about it, the characters in the movie or the characters in the TV show, they seemingly are existing in real time and are making real choices, right? That's, that, that's what the, uh, the, the director, that's what the actors want you to be able to believe. And that's what they want you to be part of is that this is something which is happening from their perspective in real time. And they're struggling to make real decisions as far as how their behavior is going to go you know the story already in advance. You've seen the movie already. You know what they're going to choose. You know how they're going to choose. You know what the outcome is going to be. But your knowledge of that is, is since you're outside of the scene, you're outside of the movie or you're outside of the TV show, your knowledge of that doesn't impact what those actors are experiencing in real time as the TV show is unfolding. So there's their experience, which is in the real time the events are taking place. And then there's your knowledge of it, which is from the outsider's view, you already know what the outcome is going to be because you've already seen the show. You've already read the, uh, you've already read the book. The book is always better than the movie. So you know what the outcome is going to be anyways. So, but that doesn't impact the seeming choices which they are struggling with and they're they going to be making inside of the, uh, the movie or inside of the TV show itself. So that knowledge, again, the main thing is, is, we don't want God's omniscience to impact the choices which we make. So, being that we don't want God's knowledge to go ahead and impact the choices that we make, so that's how we're going to go ahead. And this is, as I said, this is a little bit along the lines of the uh, of the Rambam, just I think explained a little bit uh, a little bit better and a little bit different uh, terminology. That uh, God's omniscience exists outside of time; our bechira exists inside of time. In those two, that's, uh, you know, two different dimensions, which once they're, they're in two different dimensions, you can't really compare the two and say, oh, the two different dimensions don't match. You're right. They're in two different dimensions. What do you, what do you want? You, you know, you can't, uh, uh, they, 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 they can't be contrasted in that way because they don't exist in the same form. And therefore, although God may know perfectly well what's going to happen, that's only true in his Perspective, which is outside of time. But as far as free choice is concerned, that we experience, that's something which we experience in real time in the timeline. And therefore, for us, it's an actual real choice which we make. And therefore, we're going to be rewarded and punished for those choices which we make, regardless of the fact that God already knew what we were going to choose. But that has nothing to do with our experience of exercising choice at the time that we made that choice. Okay. So we'll uh, elaborate a little bit further on this. Uh, uh, actually, next week we're off, because next week is uh, right after uh, after Yantiv. So uh, in two weeks we'll come back and we'll pick it up from uh, from over here, Mirzashem. All right. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Okay. So we'll see you all Thursday once again. If I.